0: Keith Fucher was flipping through a glossy magazine when he landed on a a stunning photo. It really took him. He stopped and stared at it. The photo was taken somewhere in the desert, sand all around. There's an orange tint to the scene that is common with those desert scenes. In the foreground were some dusty, rough-looking riders standing by their motorcycles, looking as if they've just ridden halfway across the desert to get to this remote spot to watch the stunning African sunrise. And he was really taken by this. He was mesmerized by that photo. And in that moment, in Keith's mind, a plan began to hatch. He had to do this. He had to experience what he saw in the photo. He had to become one of these guys in the photo. Now, the hurdle was that Keith didn't even own a motorcycle, he had no riding experience, certainly no off-road riding experience. He didn't even have a license to ride a motorcycle. So if he was going to do this, ride a a motorcycle through an African desert to catch a sunrise in the sand dunes, he needed to first learn how to ride, get a license, then learn to ride off-road, and then also to figure out what else he needed to know about riding in an African desert. And There was one more little hurdle, or maybe you could say ripple in the map. Keith, while he sat there staring at that photo, was coming up on 70 years old. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Ted Simon Simon Pavey, Bill Burgu, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Bowman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Grant Johnson, Jimmy Lewis. Sean Thomas, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that Adventure Riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, Greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com.
1: Yeah, my name is Keith Futcher. Um, what do I do? Well, I'm retired now, living in Malaysia, in, on Penang Island in Malaysia. Um, 50% of my time in normal times, I'm traveling with my wife. Uh, 50% of my time, I'm living here in this island paradise and enjoying everything that Malaysia has to offer, which is a lot. Keith,
0: welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So how do you end
1: up in in Penang? Well, I left the UK uh, in 1980, thinking that I was going on an overseas contract for a couple of years. And I left with my wife and our newborn baby. And uh, we went first to Hong Kong. And the thing is, it gets under your skin. And in no short time, both of us clearly understood. Certainly my wife and I, and actually my daughter, when she thought about it decades later, understood that, There was no going back. Having left the UK, we never feel that we've left it. But equally well, we've become expatriates. We've become global travelers. Uh, The irony is I spent 33 years in Hong Kong uh, living and working with my family because every time it got dull, every time something got a little bit ordinary, some real, something really great came up, some really good opportunity, and so we did well and we prospered. My daughter grew up as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Chinese girl. She's European, obviously, but she's the sees the world through Asian eyes, and and that's where we are. So my daughter is now a Singaporean in Singapore with a French husband, who's also a Singaporean, and my wife and I live 500 miles north on an island paradise in Penang. Um, why Penang? Well living and working in Hong Kong, a busy, busy place, commercial, hot pot, the realization didn't take long to, to, to us that we would, when I finish work, we would inevitably move away because in Hong Kong you work. So we chose a Penang as the island that we first visited in the 80s when we came here for a holiday. And so we came and moved here and it's a very cosmopolitan island. You can live very well, great communications, pretty well everything you would need. And yet it's still an island paradise.
0: You mentioned there it sort of gets
1: under your skin. Is it travel that gets under your skin or, or Asia? I think all of those things get under your skin, but I think the truth is that if you get on a plane to travel to another country, not to holiday, not to visit, but to live there for a period of time, and it may not be much of a time, may not be very long, but if you do those things, then you end up just liking the fact that your life now has two dimensions. You're still who you are. You're still who you, where you came from. And you go back from time to time and you instantly revert to being that person with maybe a different sort of background to what you had before, but not much different. In England, I'm English. Uh, in England and I'm in Yorkshire, then we talk about Yorkshire cricket, we talk about football, we talk about what we're doing in Yorkshire, but then you get back on the plane and you come to wherever that is. So if I was going back to Hong Kong, that overnight flight, some switch would take place and you would land and you would be the Hong Konger that you were before. And you would talk to people about things in Hong Kong, the global perspective from Hong Kong. So the more places you go, the more places you do that, then the more multifaceted you become. And that becomes really quite intoxicating to have that within you. And perhaps the issue about, you know, our big trip, becoming motorbikers at 70 and going on wild trip to Africa was part of that. My belief is actually that you can be what you want to be if you put your mind to it. And in the case of the motorbiking, we wanted to be full on motorbikers ridiculous as that seemed to our families uh, and that's what we did and then we proved the point by doing a full-on motorbiking trip and now having done that we know that that is not enough we need to do more we need to get back on our bikes and go somewhere wild to do something else at some
0: point you mentioned that you sat down and you looked at a glossy photo in a glossy magazine can, yes i did can you talk about that
1: It's happened before, Jim. I can be sitting there and I could be flicking through a magazine. I could be traveling and flicking through a magazine, and I do that a lot. And I'll see something and I'll just ask myself, there'll be something about that image, something about I've read. And the question I ask is, I wonder how great that must feel if you can do that. Um, For my 60s, I did an endurance race in Namibia um, because Namibia, endurance running, the desert, all of those things just sound so magical. And never having run a marathon in my life, I set to do that. And so in my 70s, that same switch happened. I was looking at a magazine and there was just these three guys, um, much younger than me, but not young. They looked uh, hard travellers, but they looked decent people. They weren't bandits. They just looked adventurers. And they were very nonchalantly standing around or draped on Royal Enfield motorcycles. And in the background, you could see they were coming from mountains and there was a huge valley below them. And it just looked so dry and arid that automatically you sort of assumed they were in Africa and you assumed that they were heading somewhere deeper into Africa. And I just thought, oh, my God, that would be so good to do that. Um, And at 70, when people are saying you stop doing things, That wasn't the issue. The issue was, why not try it? Why not give it a go? And I don't mean half-heartedly. You'd be determined. Um, And the only way that you can do that is just keep that vision in your mind and just take it one step at a time. So what is the first step? And then you take the second step. Now, in this case, I just thought it would be really great if I could do this with some select companions where we would have a small group and we could then share the, the, the total ridiculous situation that we're in, the total absurdity of us three guys setting off to do such a thing. And of course, everybody we told about this, especially our close family and friends and my wife and others, they just uh, protested, it's ridiculous, it's an absurd idea, and it totally is. And that is absolutely the beauty of absurd ideas. When they're truly absurd, really, what have you got to lose by giving it your absolute best to turn it around, to make it something really great, which is only great to you. It's not great to anybody else. And that's what we set out to do.
0: It's by the sounds of it, the photograph was just a photograph. You weren't reading the article. You you didn't get in. No, No, I did read. I did read the article. And was the article about adventures about people riding the motorcycle? The
1: the, the article was in one of those, you know, typical weekend magazines where a very glossy magazine comes up with really slick ways for you to spend the money that you don't necessarily have, (laughs) but you want to. So that great weekend, you know, reading, which we look at and we wish. Um, The article was by a very, it was in a very respected magazine published by the Financial Times. This was not you know, spoof stuff by a very respected uh, photojournalist who specializes in lifestyle, specializes in classic cars, motorcycles, wristwatches, a gentleman's writer, really. Um, and he wrote about this short trip he did um, with a group of guys. Um, and, you know, it, it touched all the right buttons. This was off the road riding at a pace where you were in touch with the countryside where your heartbeat was in sync with the running of your motorcycle engine. Um, and when they needed to stop and camp, they stopped and camped and wild camped where they were around a campfire and had simple food and drank a little bit of whiskey, spoke about life, sang a few songs and then went to sleep under the stars. That was the, the, the gist of the article. Um, the Boy Scout in me just wanted to do that
0: you mentioned that you did something at 60 is, is this Keith, is this you, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah. that sees these things and comes up with these, somebody would say harebrained ideas, you know, where you're going to well, go off and yeah, do something yes, ridiculous. I,
1: I think, I think that is me. And I would like that to have that on my epitaph probably. <laughs> um, I think that is me, but it's not always necessarily harebrained. I, I, I did a PhD for the same reason at 50, because I just wondered what that felt like to do it. Um, and that took four and a half years, and it was that was that was changing. That changed my thought processes in a way, um, not not significantly. It was just a shift towards clarity and accuracy. Um, so it it doesn't. So if I was going to sum that up, Jim, it's that it. I believe that every decade you get an opportunity to decide who you want to be. You can look at yourself, looking back at the decades that have gone before, and you can decide. What is it you would like to be? What image do you want? What person do you want to be? And I don't mean in a sort of weird mental way. Uh, What do you need to do to make yourself a more interesting person? And then you set out to do it. And particularly if you move around in your life, because when you step off a plane and you can go into a new country, you become the people that, that people perceive you to be. So if you're a shy guy and you get off a plane and you go somewhere where people perceive you to be actually not a shy guy, you're actually not a shy guy. You live up to other people's expectations. So so the world is literally our oyster. You can be what you want to be. I remember reading some
0: research along those lines where they said that personalities aren't so much built into us as we take on the roles that are vacant or or that are required for the area so in other words if if you were in school and you went into class and there wasn't a class clown you
1: become the class clown totally I think I think that's absolutely true and, and it's, it's not new news. It's, it's been researched, as you say, and, uh, and, 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 writers have written about it for decades, um, interesting books. But what does it mean to me on the personal level? Well, it means that when I was a younger man, then a decade was a significant snippet of my life. And I could then set out an agenda, you know, a wish list but it was important to say that you did the things that you needed to do to move it in the right direction. So when I was 50, I set out to live a life briefly of being, um, an extreme athlete, you know, doing an extreme marathon in Namibia. And, um, I, I, the, the, it is just absurd to think about it. I was never going to be that sort of athlete. I mean, the people that I was living and racing with were all of those things, men or women. I mean, these were superb athletes, incredible feats of endurance. And I was a plodder, but I got to the end, I did it. Um, and I had my little medal, And um, but that's not important. The important thing was that experience, that living with endorphins in your, high in your bloodstream all the time under a desert sky of night stars um, when you can almost touch, you know, satellites and the space stations whizzing ahead in, in a night so clear and so full of stars that most of us never see it because we have so much ambient light in our lives. That was just great. And I came back and I had to recover. I was a bit bashed around from that. Um, But I never forgot it. And then the thought was, do I go back and do that again somewhere else? Um, I ran some, some genuine marathons. I ran the London Marathon and enjoyed that. And also another one in Hong Kong, which I did with my daughter. And then she said to me at the end of that, she said, now I know that mom is absolutely right. You are totally nuts. <laughs> um, and then, and then um, you know, way, way past all of that, I picked up this magazine and I knew this was the plan. The moment I looked at that, I couldn't put it down. I showed it to my elder brother because I thought there was something in our past that might, it might push a button for him. Now, he's older than me. Um, and he looked at it, and he was taken with that picture, but what he said was a bit more heartwarming. He simply said, if you're going to do that, I want to do that with you, because you're my brother. And so we did that together. And I had another friend who I felt would be the perfect, the perfect compliment to us two, and he said the same thing. He said, I can't take my eyes off of that picture, and yes, I'm coming with you. And so we set off. We set off to, at ground zero. We needed to get those licenses, and that meant that we needed to go to all of the schools, all of the training, and um, try and ride these big bikes, and it was scary.
0: Let me jump back to the marathon phase. What did you get from that? Like when you, you said that each decade sort of is an opportunity to, to change who you are as a person. So what did you get from that?
1: Well, it wasn't a case of saying, okay, I'm going to sign up and do this marathon. I, I, it, 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 this thing has a process. I'm a very methodical sort of person. So I, need, I knew what I needed to do. The first thing I needed to do was to rebuild my body. And to get a lot of miles under my feet, so I needed to train. And I didn't have the faintest idea. I I had this idea that to run a marathon, you start at the beginning and you run for 25 miles without stopping. That was my view of what a marathon was. And then I started reading into that and starting talking to people who were marathoners. And I learned all about how the body works, how we convert this fuel store that we have into energy, how in that process we create byproducts which our body has to expel, not merely just in, out of our lungs, but physically out of our bloodstream, we have to expel things. And if we try to do that faster than we can expel it, then we get clogged up with toxins that we have to deal with. Um, I learned what f- physiology says hitting the wall meant, that basically that our body was, could not cope with that toxicology that we had to look at it. So then I learned about learning about how my body worked and how I would have to pace how I ran such that I could stay below the level of high production of these toxins so that I could continue to run and expel them at the same time. So I learned about those things. And then I met people who were runners and they advised me who I should train with. Um, When I told my wife I was going to do this, she said, you can't, you'll kill yourself. So I said, well, do you know that for a fact? And she said, no, I don't know that for a fact. So I said, well, okay, let's go and see our doctor. So we go and see our family doctor. And I, my wife says, go on, tell him, tell him what you're going to do. So I explained it. And our doctor said, oh, you can't do that, Keith, you'll kill yourself. And I said, well, <laughs> explain that to me. Do you know that for a fact that this is going to kill me? And he says, no, but it doesn't sound like a good idea. So I said, have you ever run anywhere in your life? He says, well, no, I've never run anywhere. I don't know anything about that. So I said, Okay. Let's assume then that I need to speak to a specialist. So who do I go and see? He says, go and see this orthopedic surgeon, and he will tell you. So I go and see the orthopedic surgeon, and we have the same thing. No, no, you can't do that. You're going to end up in a wheelchair. So I said, do you know that for a fact? He says, well, no. So I said, well, who do I see that would say for a fact? He said, this doctor is a specialist in athletic consultancy. He's the sort of person that super athletes, boxers, ballerinas, superbly physical people go um, for when they have a problem, and he helps them. So I went to see him, and he had a consultancy that involved trainers, and they put me on treadmills, and they took videos, and they said to me, well, you need special inserts in your shoes because you've got a bit of rotation at the angle. Um, and we have to teach you how to run because you may have been jogging for 20 years, but you're not running. You're just jogging along. Um, Your middle body needs to be totally rebuilt. And so I I started work, and after nine months, I used to get in my business suit and get in my elevator and go to the office, and I used to look around at the people in the office, and I used to think to myself, go on, just punch me in the stomach and see what that's going to do to you. You know, go on, just punch me. Mental thoughts, mental thoughts. But then I was prepared and then you go through the phase of the equipment, the gear you need, what you need. Um, but, but hang on, this doctor that you went to see, the the
0: last one, yes, they didn't say anything that you were too old. There was no consideration to that?
1: No, they said opposite. They said, they said, of course. I mean, they made me do squats. And then they said, well, what's that noise? I said, well, that's my knees. <laughs> so, so they said, well, okay, um, okay. And um, so I said, what do we do about that? He, it, they said, it's muscle. And, and, and they said to me something differently to what everybody else has said. They said to me, this is probably the best investment that you're ever going to make in your life doing this. Because he said, what we're going to do is we're going to take care of all of those sporting deficiencies we see. And so we're going to rebuild your body, we're going to up your core strength, because I didn't know this. And I don't know if you know this, Jim, but, but, but runners run a lot from their core muscles, particularly when they're tired, particularly when they're exhausted. It's the core that keeps the body together. And that's what they needed to build. So they were going to build a new core. They were going to build a new undercarriage. They were going to build that lower body. They were going to turn me into a new guy. And um, and so I got up at you know 4.45 every morning and went training um, and then maybe went to the gym to work out three times a week. I worked out with a specialist trainer as well. And then at weekends, I would also do Quarter marathons, then half marathons, then marathons, then with a light rucksack, then with a medium weight rucksack. So I would be coming back from a dawn start on a Sunday morning over the hills in Hong Kong and meeting happy families, going out with their children for a bit of a hike. And they would see me coming towards them and I could hear the whispers. I could just see it on their faces, the child saying to the mother, Mummy, Mommy, mommy what's, what's that man doing? Why, why is he like that? And her whispering back, well, he's a man, darling. They do this. And, <laughs> and, so, and so after nine months, I was about ready for this. But of course I wasn't. I, I thought I was ready. I thought I was minimalist packed. I thought I could live on 2,000 calories a day in the, in the, in the most meager weight of food that you could. I thought I could just live in my running kit for six days, uh, sleep in in the basic accommodation that we were provided with, live like an animal uh, and get through this. And I did, but um, it wasn't easy, but it was just fabulous. It was just so fabulous. I recommend it to everybody. You, You
0: went to the first doctor. He didn't say what you wanted to hear. You asked for a second opinion. He didn't say what you wanted to hear. You asked for a third opinion they said what you wanted to hear. Did you go for another opinion after that?
1: Um, I I didn't just disbelieve them. I questioned them on why they would say that. And when mm. they said that they themselves actually categorically didn't know for sure that that was true, then out of respect to them, I realized I was asking them the wrong question. So I kept going till I found people who could give me the correct answer, which was, the, the, the rationally correct answer. And the truth is we don't know what we can do until we really push ourselves mentally and physically. And I don't mean that to be an endurance test. I don't mean that to be horrible because when you're doing something that you really want to do, no matter how tough, you're inclined to still want to do it. And so I've got heroes in my life and there are people who just seem to you know, typify that attitude. And um, I, I'm not, I don't believe I'm a special gym. I believe this is true of everybody.
0: This glossy photo that gets you on your next adventure. You looked at it, you, you got inspired. You mentioned you talked to your brother. So do you, do you form the whole plan in your head as you're reading that? Or does it take some time to, to sort of bake for you?
1: Uh, vaguely, vaguely. Um, yes, you do. I mean, I, I, I sort of sectionalize it really rather than planning it in great detail. So in, in that case, it was really simple. What did we want to do? Well, we wanted the objective was to metamorphose ourselves into that photograph. And we each had that photograph and we still each got that photograph so we knew what we ne- what we were setting out to do and so the the minimum was that we needed to be able to handle these motorbikes in this terrain and we knew that we had to do that you know in keeping with the laws of the land of africa and morocco uh, and spain because we would also be um, leaving from spain so we needed we needed these licenses and We decided at an early stage that we weren't going to short circuit this. We weren't going to just try and get bits of paper by any sort of short way. We wanted, you know, I I use the phrase, you know, the covenant of the three was that we wanted the real thing. There was no doubt in my mind that these three guys in this picture had spent decades on motorcycles. They could handle them in any scenario. They were true motorbikers. And that's what we set out to be in the minimum time that we could do it. To everybody's satisfaction, the trainers, the instructors, the people who would test us, but more importantly to ourselves and even more importantly to the many motorbikers that we were sure to meet on our way, we did not ever want to come across as a phony. Um, and so that was, that was the challenge and um, we were going to go down roads that we thought were long closed to us. You know, this is a scenario in our life where when you want to renew your driving license, you have to fill in a form that says that you're still sane and that you can still see and you've still got two legs and two arms. So we, we, were, we were stretching plausibility on this. Well, you're
0: seventy years old and you you you're not even a motorcyclist and you're going to do an epic adventure.
1: I mean I was I was sixty nine coming on to seventy. Sorry. My brother was seventy four. <laughs> seventy four. So <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean. So yeah. I mean
0: surely the people you run into as you're as you're describing what you want to do, I mean, even you're looking to go and take motorcycle lessons, they have to sort of step back and look at you and think Well, it, okay,
1: there's two there's two dimensions to that. First of all, let me let me just tell you a fact of life. You're far too young to get this. In fact, anybody who is younger than me is far too young to get this. All I'm saying is this, is that from a 70-year-old's eyes looking out, providing you have your health and you're all in one bit, which is a big question mark, but providing you do have those, those virtues, that from your 70-year-old eyes looking out, you see a world through 30-year-old eyes Your mind does not tell you that you are 70 years old, okay? The frustration is that you are 30 years old and you've woken up one morning with somebody's body that you don't (laughs) recognize and it's holding you back. But the truth is nothing's changed. As far as you're concerned, you think the same way as when you were 30. You want the same things you had when you were 30 and you are ambitious, as you were when you were 30. Actually, you're more ambitious because part of your mind tells you that there is a clock ticking and you now need to move twice as fast as you did when you were 30. Besides at 30, you were a wastrel. You wasted time. And when you're at 70, you're not in the business of wasting time. So that's the only difference. Okay, you're a 30-year-old in a 70-year-old body. And there's that barrier that you have to overcome. that Between your brain,
0: that's the 30-year-old and the real world. That barrier in between you is the body.
1: Well, it's also your wife and every mirror you look in. But that's true. And also, when I say your wife, I actually mean all the people who love you become concerned that you're going to do something really stupid and kill yourself. Well, the truth of the matter is that that might be true. But if you're having fun doing it, wow, that's quite a proposition, isn't it? Because the alternative is bleak, but that's a very negative way of looking at this subject. So that's it. You know, yes, we were those age and the point that you were coming to, we looked out at the world, setting out to become full on top notch motorbikers to then do a full on top notch motorbike adventure. Um, from the point of view of somebody as 30, and that would be considered, hey, that's a really great idea. The truth is, and the trouble was, if it was trouble, here's, here was the real entertainment. Everybody we, we rocked up to see, to help us on our way, was slack-jawed with an astonishment that we could still breathe, let alone get on a <laughs> motorbike. So... That's, that's where the entertainment came because it was phenomenal, the, the reactions we had. You know, when I when m- me and my brother Mike turned up for our first day at motorbike training school, after we'd got the theory out of the way, uh, we turned up in what we thought was appropriate clothing for that adventure, for that day. And they're sort of lounging outside the cabin where we were going to be Doing training school, you know, and there were bikes laid out on this concrete area nearby. We're all of these young kids, and I'm looking at my brother, thinking, "Why aren't they in school? You know, what, what's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> and they and they were polite to us, and of course, we were polite and tried very hard to be on their wavelength. To them, we didn't want to come across as anything other than the same as them. And they're thinking the same thing. I'm thinking, oh, my God, they must be joking. And they're looking at me and they're thinking, oh, my God, they must be joking. (laughs) (laughs) And the instructor comes out and I'd spoken to him on the phone and I'd spoken about what the objective was and I'd spoken about the mission and he was totally up for it, totally wanted to come with us, was totally convinced he was going to turn us around. But I never told him the age thing. And then when he took a look at us, then he had to sort of recalculate a bit. And uh, so he said, okay, he said, this is a one day training course, but I think in your case, it's going to take three days. And we, I said, why? And he says, oh, your reflexes are different, you know? And I'm thinking, here we go. So,
0: how many yeah. 70 plus year olds did the instructor teach before you guys showed up? Did you ask that?
1: I did ask that. He He said, he didn't say none, he didn't say a lot. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, sending him a photograph. When we'd finished the trip, I sent him an email with a photograph, what I call our version of the glossy photograph in the glossy magazine, which I've sent over to you. Uh, I sent him that photograph and I said, well, you know, against all forecasts, uh, we made it. I'm really sorry for crashing your motorbike four times, but we (laughs) did make it. And he came back to me and he said, "Uh, uh, somebody had come into my office that day was with him when that email arrived and he was asking him whether he was too old to learn to ride a motorbike because he was really keen to do this. And he said, I just showed him your photograph and said, you know, this is, no, you're never too old to do anything. And I think that's true.
0: The whole getting your motorcycle license, though, that, that wasn't that easy. That wasn't three days for you.
1: No. It, well, it, we, we got off to a great start. I mean, we all three of us had sufficient brain power to get through the theory without any trouble. Um, when it came to, in, in the UK, you have to do this in phases. Well, in Europe, you have to do this in phases. So you have to do a thing called um, compulsory basic training, which, which is enough in one day for most people to... Uh, get a certificate to say that they can ride a 125cc motorcycle with L-plates on without any other supervision. And so this involves going through slow manoeuvres, going through high-speed manoeuvres, open road, two-hour ride with an instructor assessing you. And, and before that, you go through the lectures on the basics of a motorcycle, all of the safety gear, and why you wear it, and how the motorcycle functions with huge emphasis on safety, what you can do to protect yourself on the road. And that we got through, not in that first day. He wanted us to do that in two days, which we did, and um, that's fine. Uh, So that went fine, and by now we're feeling pretty upbeat. I mean, we're thinking, two days, that's great. So the third day of that particular session, we had arranged that we would migrate from 125cc to 650cc motorcycles, and that third day was superb because when we got out there and looked at these machines we were impressed with our 125 cc it looked fabulous but when we got out there and he had three of these machines lined up this was a different animal this was this was a jet fighter this was packed absolutely the frame is packed with components finely milled machinery, big wheels, everything big, the chain drive, massively bigger. Uh, You just knew looking at these motorcycles, you were dealing with a whole different creation. And then in your mind, that you know, having come from a 125, would it ever be a scenario that you could fly this thing because this looked to be a machine that you weren't going to ride, you were going to fly this. Um, Within three hours, we were all aboard a 650 and moving up and down the runway on these. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience because this was, I expected a a jet fighter takeoff. I expected it to race off, you know, flames coming out of the exhaust, (laughs) pivot into the sky. But it was more like, you know, an Airbus A380, which takes off like going up an elevator. It just lifts off the ground. So, you know, once you got the feel for it and you let the clutch out and you gave it a bit of gas, then it just started rolling and you were feet up and airborne on this beautiful, beautiful machine. Um, And that was a wonderful moment. The tricky bit came when you realised that it's a Jekyll and Hyde machine, that within every motorcycle is, you know, a huge beast. Um, and a vindictive personality so you get something wrong on a big bike and things go wrong very quickly with catastrophic events and that was the point when we knew that it was a whole different deal because that first day for me was a catastrophic event in the sense that I had to cruise after a while cruise this big machine back down towards the training hut bring it neatly round in a big circle and stop because we were going to have some more refreshments and talk about things. I came off that corner and stupidly thought I need a bit of brake and I touched the wrong one. I just briefly just hint into the front brake and then bang, front wheel locked and I was flown off it and the machine was down. Um, it was like an explosion. There was it was just one minute things were fine, one minute things were not fine. And for me, that was a turning point. That's when I knew that this was not going to be a short game. It was going to be a long game. And I didn't know how it was going to play out. And so I tried for a period of time, you know, lock your determination. This is a question of me or this machine, and it's not going to be the machine that wins. But the truth of the matter was, every time I took that approach, it was the machine that won. <laughs> Um, And so I'm, I'm training on a big, open, concrete area. This is an old Second World War bomber airfield. You know, this is a big area, flat, complete. And I still managed to drop the bike four times over a period of several training sessions, all because I was just not handling the machine as it needed. I was not balancing when I needed to balance in slow maneuvers. I was not handling clutch and throttle in the right way with the right finesse I was not using that rear brake with a touch and when I was using the front brake um, then I needed to be straight as a die and it took me a while to get that Um, and that's why I ended up continuing the training in Malaysia which was a great place it is a great place to ride a motorcycle
0: now, this is, this is street training, street riding, right? You, you still have to, because, because your plan is to ride off-road, so you'll still need off-road training, or did you do that?
1: Um, yes, we did, we did. Um, but the first, the first port of call would be to have sufficient, you know, recognizable documentation. So our focus, and perhaps wrong, and I I perhaps thought after a while it was a wrong focus, was all about instruction to pass tests, all about what do we need to pass the next test. So what we did need in a UK environment is to show sufficient proficiencies in slow manoeuvres to get a sign off from the man from the ministry that we were safe, you know, in the manoeuvrability of a motorcycle. And then the third test is that you're taken on a 45-minute open road ride with the man from the ministry, and you have to demonstrate to him that you can handle that motorcycle safely and well in a multi-traffic urban-rural scenario. Um, and those those tests are nerve-wracking. Um, but the mindset was wrong because I was thinking of this in terms of tick the box, tick the box. Can I show him I can do this? Yes, tick the box. Whereas what I needed to do was actually become comfortable on the motorcycle such that whatever I was asked to do, I could do. I may not even have done it before. And for that, I realized that I just simply needed to ride the motorcycle. Um, and And in Malaysia, in Penang, I needed to carry on. I had to come back to Penang anyway, so I needed to carry on, and we don't have winters here. You know, when we have rain, it's the temperature of your shower. So it's it's not a bad climate to be on the road or even doing motorcycle training. So I started off in the motorcycle training um, process that applies to Malaysians in Malaysia, and it's it's wonderfully quirky and pleasant and nice, very serious. You know, the people who are watching over you all the time are in blue uniforms. These people are serious. But I did. it was pointed out to me that I had such an old driving license that had been converted from my UK one to a Malaysian one that I was already licensed to ride a 250cc motorcycle in Malaysia. Mm. So I thought, well, why am I going to a training school when I simply want to ride? And I was legally allowed to do that, so I went to a dealer and I love motorcycle dealers because, unlike car dealers, motorcycle dealers are people who are really trying to fit you to a machine. I know they're selling the stuff, but frankly, these are uh, motorcycle dealers are motorbikers talking to other motorbikers. So I think it's a better language, a better conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I bought a two fifty uh, cc Kawasaki, which I loved, and then I got up every morning. At Pre-dawn, I got up about five every morning and simply rode it for three hours. So I rode into the night, into the dawn, into mixed roads scenarios and rode, I don't know, four or 5,000 miles and then went back to the UK to finish off the documentation. And then it was a slightly different scenario because now, although I was now stepping up from a 250cc machine, this was a 250cc machine that I had ridden mile after mile through multiple scenarios, day after day, and not crashed it once. This was different to being on an old runway and ridden it for a lot less time and managed to drop it four times. And so I ended up getting through the documentation stage. I went to a different training school in the UK, a much more contemporary one, new thinking now in the UK on how people should train for cars and motorbikes, not meant to be frightening, meant to be familiar, meant to be part of a serious adult process, um, and took care of it. And then it was a question of coming back to Malaysia and adding that extra dimension, that rubber on the road, different scenarios, different terrains, to be ready for Africa. And then we started seriously getting kiddied up for Africa, which was enormous fun. (laughs) <laughs> what do you take to Africa? What was the plan, you know, from the outset? Well, the plan was that we were going to get the licenses and then take the next step. The next step meant that we would buy bikes, then we would head to Africa. That's as far as we had thought. However, the big however in this was that fortunately at this time, international terrorism raised its heads in an of all places, Morocco, which is an incredibly beautiful and peaceful country. But there was the dreadful incident of the two Scandinavian women who were beheaded, you know, in the hills, mountains of the Atlas. And this happened about two to three months before we were heading there. And suddenly, you know, our family and friends were saying to us, ooh, this looks to be worrisome. It's one thing for you to go out and be idiots on motorbikes. It's another thing if you're going to an area where, you know, robbers and bandits and terrorists are rife, Mm -hmm. which was the appearance. So at that stage we decided we needed help. We needed, if we were going to do this, we needed people uh, with us who could handle violence to our advantage. I mean, we, we stood no chance in a serious confrontation, no chance at all. Um, and so I, I cast around and I found a man in Andalusia who fitted that bill. This is like a, a bodyguard that's going to go with you. He, well, we wanted somebody with us. We wanted people with us. We needed two things. First of all, three old guys on motorbikes with perhaps too good a wristwatches on their wrists would be the wrong sort of target. So we thought perhaps we needed to bulk up a bit. Mm. And if we bulked up, the logistics were going to change. And also, if we bulked up, then maybe we should think about having with us, you know, we could have shotguns with us, who could ride with us, who could, uh, you know, provide the uh, necessary steely face that we needed. And so, yeah, that's, this was not bodyguards. This actually was, this was what I would call, a serious facilitator, exactly what we needed to do. So this was somebody who could not only help us uh, protect ourselves, but actually had some of the equipment that we needed. And in actual fact, he actually got the bikes and, um, you know, we had the backup vehicle and he had a number two with him um, who was uh, an ex and now a a previous combat zone photographer, journalist of, of great repute. You know, he had seen combat situations for nearly three decades, lived a life that none of us could possibly endure um, in in uh, South America um, and in Afghanistan and in the Middle East. So this was a couple of guys who were companionable gentlemen of, of the finest sort who actually would help us on our way. And so it, it became a really odd relationship that we had you know, us old guys, uh, keen as mustard, and these guys sort of shepherding us, and they were more used to moving combat personnel around. So it, it was a great thing. And then we had two other riders. We wanted to bulk up, and we made connection with two other people who were keen to do the same thing. And they they came onto the scene by knowing the same guy in Andalusia. So... So, when we gathered, so what it in the end, it came down to we had the terrorist events in Morocco changing the game quite a lot from the point of view of what we saw as the perceived risk. Um, and so, we changed the nature of the trip. And at the same time, we bulked it up and brought in new people, not only new people to help, help us on our way to bring certain skills that we certainly never would have. We didn't have that sort of day-to-day combat experience. And then secondly, we had additional numbers. So we simply had a date. We were told that we would meet in the hills near Galcine in Andalusia on this date. Um, And we decided that we would, our our trip from the UK, I flew in from Asia, uh, my two, my brother and my friend, we met up in Manchester and then we headed off to Andalusia. Well, to get there at uh, that season, we, we had to either fly to Malaga or Gibraltar. <laughs> but here we are, 70-year-olds getting on the flight to Gibraltar. We had to hang out there for two days uh, and then we were going to get a, a message on where we were going to meet in Andalusia, Mick, who was leading on the ground. A message. yeah, this sounds like one of those, you know, <laughs> spy movies. You you're just know, going to go I know, there. I know. I, I was so I was so thrilled. I kept hugging myself. I just thought this cannot get any better. So we did we did the manly thing. We stayed in the best hotel in Gibraltar. You know, we pretended that we were not motorbikers briefly. Uh, Up till then, since we had got our licenses, I should add, we took every opportunity to wear the gear and strut around as motorbikers. We were laughingly stupid. You know, we were acting like teenagers in 70. Um, But anyway, we did that. And when we got there, so we hung out at the best hotel. We found out where the best duty-free was. We stocked up on whiskey and an enormous amount of cigars. And then we kept waiting for this message. And eventually there was a ping on our phone. Take a taxi, two o'clock on this day. Okay, go across the border, pick up a taxi, go to this bar in this village, call me back when you arrive and I'll pick you up. And that's what we did. Well, so we, Why, why we, all the clandestine meet up? I mean, why, why does he choose to do it this way? Because it was convenient for him. You know, Mick has no name. This guy lives in the shadows because that's that's him.
0: Mick is the security guy.
1: Mick is the man in charge. Yes,
0: uh, M I C. Mick. And he, and you don't know anything about him as far as last name, etc. This
1: is just. Oh, I do. I, oh, okay. he, he is. I do now. Yes, of course I do. And of course he he is the real deal. By the way, he is totally authentic, and mm-hmm. he can see huge humor in all of this. I mean, he just thinks this is. He he just thinks it's fabulous. <laughs> he he said to me, "You have given me hope."
0: That's what he said mm. to me at the end of this. Yeah, um, I can imagine for sure. Now, so, now is, uh, so, does he take over the planning of this whole thing? I mean, you, you said there, you yes, know, you you yes, sort of showed up, so he, he took it over.
1: He took over the planning. We had already arranged what the schedule would be. We already knew that. We knew we we needed to know how many days we were going to be on the road. And the thing about Mick is that. There is a plan, so each day has objectives. Every day is tactical. That is, how you reach that objective is up to us to determine. However, the objective, that day's objective, is a given. It's not a discussion point. It's not a negotiation. So if you want to stay in bed until 3 in the afternoon and then do a day's work and it's going to take you till midnight, then that's the way it's going to be. But you're going to get there. And... um so that's how he was. So yeah, he, he instilled a certain a certain style to us. He um, you know, we so you were talking about Enduro. Mick knew nothing about us, but he did know we were keen as mustard. He did know that we were old, and he knew that we had the paperwork, and we had sent him bundles of folding money. So we were all together on this. And so that weekend, so he met us and we were then in an accommodation that he had arranged for us in, uh, in the hills near Galcine. And it was fantastic. It was so cool. And the, the point of being there was for the next two days, we would be riding enduro on Royal Enfields under the cracking whip of Mick. And he wanted to see if we were going to cut it. And it was quite clear that if we were not going to cut it in his eyes, we weren't going to Africa. That was the deal. And so we had had two days of off-road riding up and down through rivers, uh, mostly over sort of gravel sands through mud, um, twisty, turny tracks through forests, interspersed with wonderful lunches and dinners, so, yeah, that was the proving grave. And on, and on the way, we managed to, Mike spectacularly slid his bike um, and, and got up cursing and screaming because he had, you know, melted his trousers on the exhaust of the Enfield, smashed the headlamp and kept apologizing profusely for crashing the bike. And we all said, no, you didn't crash it you slid it over really bad gravel. And if you had not stopped it on the edge of that, you were going over a cliff. So Mike, we think you did a pretty good emergency stop. You know, so I, I got bogged down, um, managed to get it bogged down. Um, we, we all had in that 48 hours, a lot of reasons to think that we were not going to cut it. And... Um, you know, on the Sunday late afternoon, Mick said, okay, we better get back because we've got to repack everything for Africa. So then we set off. That was your your sort of uh, hurrah, I guess, at that point. You knew you passed um, his test. That night, he said, "He said we got to get paid. He, he said three things. We're going to get back. We're going to get repacked. I've got to rejig. Um, my Range Rover. He has a very ancient Range Rover that runs with the precision of a Rolls Royce. He is that sort of guy because he takes care of all of his own mechanicals. So he said, "I've got to rejig. I've got to rejig the Range Rover for long distance desert." which I thought sounded wonderful. That's just what I want to do. Um, <laughs> and then he says, Jason, who has, um, was, is, Jason has, as, as an individual, has, ha, I don't know how many lives he's got, but he's lost more than nine and survived. I mean, he has been next to people who have been killed by roadside devices. Jason is the photographer photographer. Well, Jason is actually a mixed friend and he had nothing to do. So he was co-driving with him and he, he said, you know, he is a photojournalist of some reputation. He said, I'll do two things. First of all, I'll run some classes this weekend on how you use your iPhone to take better pictures. Um, but also I'll take pictures on the way. And he did that because he was interested in taking the pictures and I bought the copyright of them. Um, and some of those you've got. So it's, yeah, so Jason was there, but Jason has an awareness of danger. Most of us have no sense. Now, Jason was the sort of guy that when you approach traffic lights in, the, in an urban area, will open all the windows. And I said to him, we were doing that. I said, we're going into a village to have supper. I said, why are you doing that? He said, habit. I said, well, what sort of habit is that? He says, he says when we stop at traffic lights is when trouble happens and I want to make sure there's no glass flying around. And then he showed me that on his key ring, he's got this device that will slice open, you know, a seatbelt in a second. Jason is so far ahead about potential danger. He is literally the safest guy in town to hang around. If you want to live for a long while, then hang around with Jason. He's the guy who introduced us to a shitbag. This was news to me. Have you ever heard of a shitbag? No, I don't think so. Okay. He pointed out that in in the biggest combat situations that that people's intestinal problems can get worse. And so this is a a malaise which is not great at that time, but he says the battle has to go on. So in this small Ziploc bag, you carry with you everything you need to keep you combat ready. So (laughs) we're sitting around saying, I wonder what that can be. And he says, well, change of underwear. Some tissue would be good, matches and a head torch would be great. And okay, so we get the tissues. Okay, we get that, but the matches and the head torch and his answers were succinct and on the game. Burn the debris. Leave it as nature intended. So scorched earth policy he said will apply for the entirety of this trip. And then secondly, he said, never, ever be without a head torch. You never know when you're going to need a head torch, which proved to be a point because we all used the head torches. We didn't need the bags that much, but, you know, it was. So Jason was the guy who was a perfect complement to mix, you know, well-tempered latent aggression. So they were a really great team, which was why when we rode as a team on the African roads, we rode in echelon, we knew when to be spread out. We knew when to be bunched together. We knew how to handle, you know, primeval uh, heavy traffic, African heavy traffic, how to manage to stay on the road when they wanted to push us off. And that was all included in that weekend. It was a pretty fantastic one. However... Before we left for Africa, a number of things were going to happen. Jason was going to just check us out for survival kit, make sure that we were taking what we needed for wild camping, what we didn't need. Well, that was our option if we wanted to carry that. Um, and so we did. So that evening we we went through preparation. Uh, we had uh, a private chef in our digs, and so she cooked a wonderful farewell dinner. And so one of the finest nights... You know, I can remember for a long time, was sitting by that log fire, finishing off the whiskey, smoking cigars and watching the smoke go up to the rafters. And that's when Mick told me about his hero. And um, that is going to be the next adventure because that is quite a hero. And when Mick talks about somebody that he admires and why, you can see it's a very compelling story. And then we set off the next day for Africa. Who who is Mix Hero? We're
0: going to take just a quick break. I got a couple things to tell you about, but stick around because we have a lot more great stuff coming up in just a few minutes. Stay with us. You know, I used to think that a throttle lock was only good on the highway, but now I realize the reason that I thought that is because I didn't have an Atlas throttle lock. The Atlas throttle lock is an ingenious device designed by um, David and Heidi Winters after returning from their own round-the-world trip, and they did it because they were so dissatisfied with the throttle locks that were available. So the end result, the Atlas throttle lock, is nothing short of craftsmanship. I think it's the kind of craftsmanship you find in a quality watch. Seriously, the thing is beautiful. It clamps onto your handlebar in minutes. It can be changed from bike to bike, but the best thing, in my opinion, is the way it works. Two buttons, one for engage, one for disengage. They both have a positive, firm feel, so there's no mistaking what you're doing. And when it's engaged, you just adjust the throttle, either add more throttle or let a little throttle off without disengaging the Atlas. You just twist and relax. It's going to change the way you ride. Have a look. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. How many riders have you heard say the stock seat on their bike is terrible? Some say it's like sitting on a two by four, others say it's like sitting on a wood, wood slab. It's important to keep your butt happy so that you're comfortable. But what about your feet? Stock foot pegs are the bare minimum. So you can ride the bike out of the showroom. That's about all you want to do with the stock pegs. But if you want to get serious control of your bike, you want to sort of up your ability to control your motorcycle. Well, the the stock pegs just don't cut it. And you know, until you've had a great set of foot pegs on your bike, you probably can't imagine just how much difference they can make. The day that I installed my IMS products foot pegs, Uh, I was getting ready to head out on a ride. I installed them and then I went around packing and loading and I sort of forgot that I installed these new foot pegs on my bike. That is until I rode out the driveway and the moment I stood up on those pegs, man, the connection between my foot, and my foot pegs, I didn't realize what I was missing before. It's important, obviously, to have connection between your foot and your foot pegs because it is how you control your bike in particular when you stand. But even on the long stretches, you want a, a foot peg that's comfortable IMS Products makes a full line of motorcycle foot pegs um, to fit your ride. Everything from the real wide ADV1 and ADV2 on down to the core enduro and others that they have. They're made of cast certified stainless steel. They're warranted for life. They're made in the USA. IMSproducts.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there, you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Turkana Gear is a new manufacturer of soft luggage for motorcycles, crafted through experience is their motto because the founders are all travelers. So these travelers, including Mickness and Elsby from Piki, Piki Overland, got together and brainstormed on what they liked and what they thought was lacking in soft gear that they had experience with. They thought about what was important to them as travelers for gear, and they came up with some interesting points. First off, uh, it was paramount that the gear was durable. That's an obvious one, dependable, of course. Um, then repairable. They wanted the bags to be easily repaired on the road. Simplicity. They want gear that gets the job done. And the interesting thing was they wanted it available at prices that leaves money in your pocket for more riding. I like that idea. TurkanaGear.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Turkana is T-U-R-K-A-N-A. So TurkanaGear.com. Who, who is Mix Hero?
1: a woman called Winifred Wells, and this goes back, I was, what, I was barely a teenager when Winifred Wells made her name, but she was uh, an African girl, woman, 22 perhaps, uh, in Perth on the far side of Australia, and she grew up, In a a sort of semi-urban existence in Australia, parents were middle class, well-to-do. She was a bit of a tomboy, and so when she was 15, she told her parents she really wanted a motorbike, and they laughed at her, so she saved up enough money, and she bought a motorbike, an old motorbike. Um, And then she went to the Melbourne Motorcycling Club, which was totally male-dominated, and said she wanted to join, and of course they laughed as silly, so she turned up for some of their track events and beat them, so she became a member. Hmm. And then when she was 22, she decided that she wanted to go to Sydney because she had never been there to take a look. So one boxing day, she set off at noon, and she rode to Sydney, okay, the other side of the continent. Nobody had ever done that. To get to Sydney, she had to ride across the Nullarbor Desert. Nobody had ridden across the Nullarbor Desert. And when she spoke about it and she asked for, you know, tips and ideas at the Melbourne Motorcycling Club, they all laughed their heads off and said, you're being totally absurd. You know, your bearings are going to seize. You're not going to be able to do this. The bike won't be able to handle it. So she went to see Royal Enfield, a dealer in Royal Enfield. And she, first of all, she bought a Royal Enfield 350 of him um, and bartered for the price. And then she managed to get 25 quid sponsorship for this trip, which, you know, this woman has gumption if she can do all of these things. Yeah. And so Christmas she set off and she made her way to Sydney and she had a mini weekend break in Sydney. And then she rode all the way back because she had to get back because she had to go back to work. And so I, I'd done the math. She was on the bike pretty well, you know, certainly dawn till dusk, and hammering it to have done all of that thing. And she did this, okay, so she did this trip. And she went on to do other great things. But the thing about it that that has Mick impressed me was she simply did it. It was a totally lunatic idea, totally, totally absurd. And what I find so compelling about this was that she knew inside her that she could do it. And whatever, you know, she set off and whatever the day gave her, whatever was going to happen, she knew that it was her decisions that would get her through. So that is survivalist mentality. Now Mick and Jason are people of the same caliber. They're the sort of people who can be absolutely flat down at daybreak. And they will know that by the end of the day, they would have made some profit From that base, they would have improved their position. I don't know many people who have that confidence. And I think that's admirable. And I would like to test myself in that scenario because I think that would be a lifetime of achievement to know that. Mm -hmm. Is Mick a motorcyclist? Yeah. He is as well. He's a motorcyclist. He grew up with a father who had barn full of beautiful classic bikes And I like to think of Mick still toddling around, barely able to walk, watching his dad fettling those bikes, suggesting maybe an adjustment or an appropriate torque here, and perhaps he was doing this wrong there. And um, so he's grown up with machinery and machines, which is something I have not. I have not. I've grown up with the machinery, but I've grown up with garages and mechanics and servicemen who are able to take care of all of my needs. And so it's a big dimension. And that's one of the things about becoming a motorbiker that's quite interesting, that you start to understand the machine has a personality. You start to understand the machine and you start to want to actually know its physiology a lot better. I don't know that I'm competent to do that. That's going to be an interesting question to ask myself.
0: Mick, um, your, your security guy, Jason, the, the photographer, Mick's friend, who are going along, they're sort of running things at, the, at this point where when you get into the the actual trip, does that change things? in, in a, does it take away from the adventure itself? I mean, because you're you're almost taking something that was a spontaneous adventure and you want to have it, this experience as being a true adventure. And then you've got this other person who all of a sudden is now running the show, basically. And, and you're sort of along, well, I don't want to say along for the ride, but I mean, um, there's someone else running the show. Does that change
1: your picture? It, it it could have. However, we had made, without thinking about it, we had made an adjustment. We knew that we were going to Africa and that was the mission, but it, it wasn't going to Africa to see the sunrise over the Sahara was going to be the end of it. This was like the true proof that we could ride a motorcycle. The question now arose in our minds about, what we were then going to do with that knowledge. What were we going to do with this skill? Particularly because we all perceived in a small way that it had changed us. Uh, And that sounds absurd as I say that. It just sounds so pompous to say that. But the truth of the matter was that something had changed. Something changed in me after Namibia. Something changed in me after I did my PhD. So why not now? So we didn't feel that this was you know, the moment, we, we felt that it was a stellar moment. But what we also realized that was actually being with Mick and Jason and our other companions on the road, we, we had just, you know, enhanced this learning curve that we were on. This was like a paramilitary training mission. And every day and every minute of every hour, we were just part of that dynamic. I mean, I have this unfortunate characteristic, that when I want to communicate with people, I tend to watch their mannerisms, hear their language, hear how they speak, uh, pick up on all of those characteristics, and I end up using it myself, and it's well-intended. Please understand that well-intended. But my wife and my, my daughter have pointed out to me that in a stressful situation, uh, or when I'm slightly drunk, then I can do this to the point of parody. So they, they've had to nudge me. I remember we were having a party in Hong Kong, and we had a lot of uh, Americans, some Texans over from Bechtel, and we were working with them. And so we threw a bit of a party, and it was a great party. And My, my wife and daughter had to keep nudging me and say, stop talking American, you know, you're English. <laughs> so, so after we had been with Mick for a little while, you know, we're all standing straight up. We've all got that clipped intonation. We're using, you know, mission as a, as a familiar word. So it was it was huge fun. We just took to it. All took to it. We took to this role play, um, and it made it good because the learning point of it was truly significant. I mean, we were we were doing things that we never imagined we did. Mick prefers, out of preference, that we wild camp. And if that meant sleeping in a ditch in the rain, then that was going to be the wild camping of the night. We didn't do that, but we did wild camp, and that was a great experience. Um, And one of us, um, the, the fog came down, the mist came down high on the mountains. One of us needed to get up and take a comfort break. He did the right things. We had built a camp latrine. There was a marker on that latrine, but by now that had faded. The mist was thick. He laid a branch trail from his swag to that place. Um, He never found the latrine, and he never found us again. So when we got up the following morning, his bivouac was exactly as he left it. It was zipped up. We thought he was just sleeping late. But in fact, when we kicked him, and he didn't move, and we looked inside, and it was as he left it we realized we had a problem. So we was instantly down into a survival situation for the most innocent of reasons. And um, so we had to deal with that and we did. And so it was all the time we were on a learning curve. I would do it 10 times over simply because each time would be a new lesson, a new skill, a new learning set. And that was part of our trip. Did you find this person? Yes. Um, the, the, this person uh, is American and um, his he, he, for pleasure, likes hanging off mountains and uh, climbing and bivouacking on tiny bits of string, you know, on the side of a vertical cliff. That, he thinks, is fun. So... If anybody was going to get lost and survive, it was him. So he was in the thinnest of sort of track suits and a pair of slipper shoes, but he couldn't find us. We were high up in the Atlas Mountains on the highest ridge, about halfway up, and it was cold. Um, And so he was lost and did everything that he could think to do. So he looked for the lie of the land. He looked for the pattern of the trees, but we were in a, a very old olive grove, so there was no real pattern. So he tried, and he knew that if he, if he found a cozy nook, and he did, so he stuffed, you know, he told us, he, I stuffed my uh, tracksuit with bracken to get some air layer there to get a bit more warmth. And he said, then I would find somewhere to shelter. But he said, the moment I felt myself going to sleep, I knew I had to move because he said, if you sleep, you die. And we said, well, how does that work? And he says, your muscles don't shiver when you sleep. And shivering is your body's ability to give you enough warmth to keep you alive. So if you sleep, you're in trouble. So he kept at it through the night. Um, And then eventually he found a track which had enough substance to think that was the track that we came in, we rode in on. Uh, And he followed that downhill till it came to a junction. And then he knew he was confirmed. He knew where the nearest town was. So he started trekking as he was. And at daybreak, he got there and he asked somebody for the police. They took him to the nearest police station. They wrapped him in a blanket, fed him hot tea and waited for a phone call. And by mid-morning, we had regrouped and we were making those calls. And so we asked, you know, we were asking, is there a man called Kid there? And they said, yeah. And so we picked him up. And so he went into recovery mode, which is, why we ended up having an interesting experience near naked with the locals that night. But that's a entirely different story. Uh, how old is Kid? Or was he at the he's, time? He's, um, he's, he was the youngest of us, so he's just
0: turned 40. So how, how far, is this story that you just told, how far into the trip is that?
1: We are three days in how long
0: was okay. it, does this trip end up being?
1: The next, the, the plan was, if it hadn't been for that sort of um, pause, that day we would have reached the Sahara. And the next morning we were going to do the dawn, uh, uh, you know, seeing the dawn, the sunrise at the dawning of a new day in the Sahara. So we were a day late. So he needed, we needed to regroup. We needed to get, make sure that he was fully up to, Gear and uh, so we, we took we had a bit of float in the program and that's where we used it and I should point out that all of our planning in terms of the weather, the season what we would have to deal with, what equipment we would need at the personal level was thrown out of whack by the coldest wettest spring that Morocco <laughs> can recall and as Mick kept explaining, you know this is just climate warming guys, we just got to suck it up. Well he didn't put it quite like that, but that's what he meant. <laughs> and, um, so it was, uh, we were riding in very low temperatures in driving rain. If it wasn't rain, it was heavy clouds. So we were driving riding in difficult conditions, but we were pressing on because, you know, objectives for objectives and the detail was just tactics. And so we pushed on into the desert. For, for the route, you were going from
0: where to where?
1: We came across, um, we came from um, just the bay, just the bay of Algeciras, just near Gibraltar. And we came, went across on roll-on ferries to uh, just outside Tangier, Tangier Med. It's a new commercial port. And we picked up the road network then to head for Chefchaouen in the foothills of the uh, Rift Mountains. Uh, and we ended up doing that. We were delayed on the way. So we ended up doing that through sea fog and into the night. So that was a foggy night ride. Um, and we were late, so we were pushing on. Uh, got to Chuan, Then we followed the road network to get us right into the heart of Morocco and into the Middle Atlas. And then from there, we started rising up, taking one of the few roads that would take us over the atlas and to the Atlas Plateau. The atlas is... Um, two two mountain ranges with a high, arid, spectacular, austere plateau um, between the two. And so this incident uh, happened when we had ridden the Cirque de Jaffier, which is, you know, a, a ride of enduro legend in the sense that it is the most magnificent mountain territory with a very spirally, tiny track taking you down to the base of it. Um with nothing around, and the vistas are spectacular. And so we had done that, and were wild camping that night in celebration. And the plan was that we would gear up and head for the desert the next morning, and then big moment, and then start heading back. Very simple agenda, really. But every way we went, there was always something new cropping up, a little issue here, a little issue there.
0: Talk about the, the riding conditions and how the riders were handling it.
1: Um well we had we had a range of expertise. We had one guy who came to join us from Germany who had been riding oh, for a long while and I think he actually had a military background at a much younger age where he also rode motorbikes. So he was he became a point man leading. And so he was properly geared for any range of weather. He chose of the available bikes that Mick had, he had got together, he chose a a camouflage bike. So he had a, a Royal Enfield in camouflage green, which suited him and his black gear. He was a big man perfectly. He looked like he looked like an avenging angel at the front of our pack, actually leaned, hunched over this tiny bike. I was geared for what I thought was going to be a desert trip. Uh, the kid was also geared for James Dean meets the desert. Um, my older brother was a little bit more like my German friend, but lighter loaded. And at the back was my friend from Yorkshire in England, David, who was wearing summer riding kit because he thought it would be so hot. He brought along a mesh jacket. So we were doing, doing this ride in much lower temperatures in high ground, uh, than we expected with the added, um, the added burden of either driving rain or quite heavy cloud base. Um, You know, it's interesting, driving rain, cloud base, which is the worst, I'm not sure. Because a cloud base is like raindrops frozen in the air. It's just like heavy dew just hanging there. It just seems to be a wall of water, a wall of mist that you're going through. It's like rain without speed. And so that was every day we had downpours. When we were in the Sahara uh, for that dawn, that night, um, this was now April, Uh, should have been much higher temperature. The temperature fell, um, and for the first time in nearly a decade and a half, the rain fell that night, just a little bit. But by the time we packed and started reversing out of that situation, the rain started. They had nearly a year's rain in the weekend. So when we took the desert roads back out of the desert, instead of them being flat, sandy, gritty surfaces, They were just mirror ponds of water, Um, just be a mirror pond. And then you would speed on beyond that. And then you would see the shimmer like a desert oasis in the the horizon. And as you got closer to it, you realized it wasn't the sky. It was, in fact, a mirror finished water. And we, we couldn't dare hit that with speed because we weren't sure what was going to happen when we hit it. So we had that stop t- start to get us out of the flat of the desert. So we had about 30, 35 miles of that before the land started to rise and we went back into the mountains where now it was just, just absolutely torrential rain, which we rode through for that day. So we got all the way back to the high middle atlas in one day. And then that night the snow fell. But it was okay the next day. We had new crisp sight lines. We could see the tarmac, and so we pushed on.
0: Is there at any point where any of you actually um, thought that you're sort of in over your head?
1: Um, I, I suspect uh, the kid had some worries when he got <laughs> lost. but <laughs> And I, do you know what? I don't think we did in the sense that we were too busy in the moment. we were just too busy uh, whenever we stopped you know for some some wonderful black uh, Moroccan coffee or some honey tea. Um, the conversation was about this is the moment, this is a stellar moment in our lives and um, and we were just we were strutting around like giants of men by then. And we would meet people who would see the bikes parked up and would want to know what was going on because this was a very unusual grouping of bikes. And they would come over and then they would tell stories about when they had bikes or perhaps had ridden a bike like this. And every one of those was a great story. So we never felt bad about it. Um, We never felt that we were over our head. We were just too excited. We were just too in the moment to be fearful. There were moments when we were riding, when I thought we were pushing the limits of our capability, when we were night riding, um, and we knew that we had to overtake slow moving traffic, and we knew that it was heavy on both sides. And this was an individual decision, but we knew we had to do it. But then we became very conscious that we were totally at one with the motorcycle. We, 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 we realized we needed torque when we needed it. We were tended to be in the right gear. We would make that decision. We played it safe. We were sweeping wide. We were checking, checking, checking. And then we were just going full throttle for it and and pushing on. And so when I recall it, I I just felt that we were just, this was the Starfleet, and we were just maneuvering through difficult skies with enemy all around us. And we just flew it. um, At the end of it, we were like a squadron of heroes. We loved it. Talk about the the sunrise or the the sunset. Which was it you were after? We wanted the sunrise. We wanted to see a new dawn uh, arise over the desert of the Sahara. And we had chosen Erg Chebai because it is stereotypical desert. It is high, high sand dunes. Um, the deserts are not made up of sand dunes. Sand dunes are just accumulations of very fine, fine windborne sand that happen. And these things are alive, they move infinitely slowly, but they change every day as, as the wind as cleans them, they are a different shape, a different finish. So these are like living, earthen sculptures and we wanted to be on the nearest one that we could find bearing in mind that you could take North America and sit it in the Sahara or even China for that matter you get an idea of how big the Sahara is so we were not going to go for the Sahara middle but we wanted to be in these sand dunes and so Erg Chebai which is on the border of Morocco near Tunisia was the nearest that we could do for that and so we got there And then we woke about five in the morning to then gather up and then trek into the Sahara to get up those dunes. Climbing a dune is no easy call. It is the most exhausting experience to try and get up these. They can be higher than a four or five-story house. And as you climb them, the, the ground gives away under your feet, so you're slipping back, so you've got to keep up a pace but it is steeper than you can possibly deal with. And if it doesn't slip back, then your foot slips in and then you half in the next tread have to pull it out of that sand to make the next step. And you start that process knowing that you can't afford to stop because if you stop, you'll be defeated. You'll be back to square one. So it does push, push your lungs and your heart to the limit. So just when you think that your heart is literally going to explode in your chest, when you know this is the point where you are actually going to die, you manage to reach the top and that's how it works. And so we did that and then hiked deeper into the desert because we wanted to find in the dark, we just had those head torches for illumination and we were walking the edges of the ridge. So we're walking on a knife edge of sand that fell away 45 degrees either side of us with your feet slipping as you're walking into the desert until we found what we thought was we sensed was an optimum optimum place and then we waited and then we felt the desert cold um and there was this cloud there was this shimmer of cloud so we did not get that diamond sky of stars because of this weird weather that was taking place However, then it changed as the sun rose, then we started to get more light into the night and we began to discern shapes and the dawn rose in that fashion and we trekked back and reversed out. Did it feel like what you expected when you're sitting
0: there watching that sunrise?
1: Oh, it felt wonderful. It, it, It... It would have been arguably better if we had that terrestrial night above us, all those stars. We'd seen that when we were wild camping, so we knew it was there. Uh, No, it was the way I would describe it was that we had all the way through this mission, we had told everybody that what we were setting out to do was laughably absurd because if we didn't say it, they were going to tell us, you're going to kill yourself. You're being absurd. You're too old. Don't be absurd. Don't be absurd. And so we started off by simply saying that is the power of absurd. That is the beauty of it. So we would kick off and say, before you say anything, this is totally absurd, but just hear me out because this is what we are going to do. And that's how it went. And so at that moment in time, we had changed that absurdity into something that for us personally and only for us personally was something that had turned into something sublime. Something wonderful. But that was only true for us. It's not not something that we can talk about in a party or boast about because it's a personal thing. And it's not relative to other people. We were not the fastest man on the planet. We were not the best motorcyclist. By far, we were probably the worst motorbikers ever to have ridden in Africa. That wasn't the point. The point was that we had taken this absurd notion and made it, for us, meaningful. And all the way back, and all the way back from Andalusia to the UK, and then for me flying out the next day home to Southeast Asia. And ever since, I know it's there, that we took that absurd idea and made it sublime. At 70,
0: doing this adventure, what sort of limitations or or things do you have to deal with that you wouldn't have had to when you were younger?
1: Well, this is where a strong sense of denial is helpful. (laughs) Okay, so you see, the thing is, you you have a choice. You can make excuses for what you don't do, or you can push on and just not talk about it. And I think that if you take the positive line, you tend to just push on. So, what, what are well, you need to prepare. So, I think you need, like anybody else, you need to. Work at making sure your core strength is up. Now, Mike, Mike, my brother, who is four years older than me, when I met him at Manchester Airport and we set off to Spain, I walked by him, I didn't recognize him. Now, he's my brother and I didn't recognize him. And the reason I didn't recognize him was not only had he been working on getting his documentation together, he had been doing almost daily training yoga sessions So he had lost weight. He was hewn. He was sculpted. I think he'd had a whole team, you know, of sartorial advisors working on his kit. I mean, he had a new haircut. The guy was totally rejicked. I was so embarrassed to be his brother. I looked a scruffy git compared to him. And so he had prepped in the full way. He had worked on all of that core body strength. And he said to me, and it wasn't a vanity thing, he said, I had a real fear that the body would let me down. And so I knew I had to prep. So I worked with trainers. And so that is true. So I think anybody who's setting off to do a serious a serious mission, a serious journey, who's going to push himself that harder, should at least spend the same amount of time as that whole trip training for it. They should be really... If you're going to run 250K in the desert... You need to have run 250 k before you get the desert in simulated conditions, or maybe 500 k. Maybe that's a better. So you do you do need to prepare your body over a period of time. Um, but apart from, and then you need to visualize. You need to think about what you need. Whatever you take is going to be wrong, but it's much better than guesswork. So you need to visualize the situations. Imagine what it's going to be like. Imagine what you're going to need uh, and try and work through it that way. And that's, that's a huge amount of fun. This is like Christmas before Christmas arrives. The anticipation is just so much joy. You talked
0: about change, how, you know, each, each of these decades when you're, when you're tackling something, there's certain change comes over you from doing this that you experience. What sort of change did you get from this?
1: Um, I felt a sense of release. I felt I had, here's a phrase that when you get to your 70s, when you go and see your doctor, he'll tell you that you've now entered the valley of death, if he's honest. Okay, Mm -hmm. so people, when they have decade birthdays, tend to see these sort of, you know, flags on the way. Oh, 40, midlife crisis. I'm going to live less than I've already lived. Wow. Better get on. Better buy that Ferrari. Get the new girlfriend quickly. Um, All of that sort of stuff. When you get to your 70s, you know, you're so far beyond a midlife crisis. You think, God, have I got the energy to have a crisis? So there is this flag at the 70s. There's a flag at the 60s. And also when you get to the 70s, you stop thinking in terms of a decade. That's too long. You better think in terms of a five-year plan. The Chinese have got that right. Let's have a five-year plan. So you just got to up your game. Um, and therefore the release for me was an actual realization that I should just unburden myself. I should get rid of a lot of stuff, lighten up, and really go for it. Seriously go for a very adventurous time. You know, come hell or high water, what do you have to lose at 70, really? You know, you are living for yourself, but you're living for the people who love you, but they want you to be forever 21 or 30. Um, And that's not the way it's going to work. So I think you simply have to you have an obligation to push harder and to live with verve and style and energy whilst your health permits you. And if your health gets in the way, then you have to deal with that that as a separate issue. But my view is, is the harder and fitter you stay, then maybe you can hold it altogether for longer. So there is absolutely no reason at 70 to do anything that a 30-year-old, well, there are some things you can't do, but, you know, So you just push on and you give it your best. And I believe that you can do all of those things. That thought
0: process is divergent from from the standard thought process um, of as we get older, it's time to slow down. I mean, most people think of that. You retire and you slow down and you do some things. Maybe you take a cruise. Well, Well,
1: Jim, who says that? I don't know. It's, it's what we're taught. I mean, there's, it's funny because we talk about a lot of it's, things think like it's this. All, it's all of the people around us do that because they want to protect us and nurture us and, and make us live longer and better. They want to keep us wrapped in cotton wool, you know, in a dressing gown with our slippers by the fire, watching a bit of TV because we're safer that way. But it's we're not safer to ourselves that way if we allow ourselves to have that mentality. So I think I think that is a truism that we live, but I don't think it's a valid argument on how you should live your life.
0: I was going to ask
1: you what the,
0: the eighty decade uh, for has I planned for you, but I, I guess I really should be saying is what does the next five years have in store for you?
1: Well, first of all, the motorcycle has liberated me. Um, I know that's a very odd thing to say, but I, I can see now why so many people migrate from motorcycles to become pilots. And I don't mean pilots of big planes. I mean pilots of micro lights, pilots of the smaller plane, because that, that has now thrown in that dimension that we don't have on motorcycles. You know, on a motorcycle, you're piloting this machine and you can go any way except altitude. And that's a great sensation. So add that extra dimension and added altitude and know then that you're leaving the road and you're going to have to navigate the skies with a view of coming back or bringing it down safely in the right place is a huge thrill. Winifred Wells, by by the way, went on to be a legendary pilot in Australia. So I I get that. So for me, I don't currently have that aspiration. I don't intend to stop scuba diving because I've always felt scuba diving a great free release. The ability to hover over reefs and vast depths and just look at what's going on in that strange, weird other world is, is just so wonderful. But the motorcycle, I feel, is a great liberating force. It is the ultimate road trip vehicle you and two wheels, which means that you have to attend to that machine. That machine is useless without you on board. And if you don't do it right, the machine is going to hurt you. So it's an interesting dynamic. And then you can just, the idea that you can just set astride that and set off and go anywhere. There are some wonderful adventurers out there now with great blogs and doing wonderful, great things, simply from that sense of personal exploration and that is that is what I want to do. I just want to feel that I can continue to explore the world from my own personal perspective, because what we find in the world, near or far, is about how we relate to it. It's a personal thing, and I've always loved that. I think travel and exploration and the self-development that goes with that is the greatest luxury. I should now add that the greatest luxury actually is time, but the one that is most sensual is that exploration. To travel is to explore, to learn, and to become a new person on every new day you're in a new place. And I think that's great. You're a
0: biker now. You didn't just take an adventure that was bike-centric. You've come out of it a motorcyclist.
1: Yeah, and I'm very pleased about that, quite proud about that. I don't deserve the accolade because... All of the motorcyclists I hang out with and I I have as friends are so much better at it than me, and I'm continuing to love. And I just stay on the quiet side of that. And, and what's great about motorbikers all over the world, everyone that I've met without failing, no matter how different to me, has welcomed the opportunity to share on the basis that we're both motorbikers. And I think that's really good. I've got a great story about Mike when we were learning to ride and we were both stressed out. He was trying to put together a contract um, with a company in America and he realized that night that we were dealing with the stress of the first motorcycles, he woke up in the night and realized he could see it in his mind, there was a miscalculation in the tender price. So he rang his counterpart in Texas and said, um, explained that there is an error, the big error, Affects Mike, and um, he wanted to negotiate around it. And the guy, you know, it's a commercial world. He said, "Hey, Mike, a contract's a contract. You know, what can I do? You know, that's the way it is, buddy." And so Mike decided to sort of take a different tack and talk about what that guy was doing, what he was doing. And he said, "So, what are you what are you doing at the moment, Mike?" And he said, "Well, I'm I'm riding a Suzuki. You know, through the day, I'm doing some training." So this guy perks up and he says, are you a motorbiker, Mike? And so Mike, seeing his opportunity, says, well, yeah. Why are you? And the Texan says, yeah, I've I've got a soft tail. I'm doing a trip this weekend. I'm going from A to B and we're going to do this. It's going to be great. And then Mike said, gee, I wish I could be with you there doing that. So then they said, well, okay, well, let's think about this. So then he says at the end, the Texan says at the end of the conversation, Mike, you know, he said, don't worry, we'll sort something out. So... I know, strange story, but that's how motorbikers are. <laughs> they don't hurt other motorbikers. Uh, you, um, the, whole, the whole
0: thing is absurd. You, you've said observed several times. It's the name of a book you wrote about this adventure. Yes. What is the book about? What does it tell
1: the reader? Uh, pretty much all of the if you like, my personal view on, on this whole idea, um, with, with the nitty-gritty, the detail of it. See, one of the things about absurd is you take it to your heart, is it's ironic, you know, the British love irony, but it is satire. It's, you're laughing at yourself. You know, when you say, I'm going to do something absurd, it makes people smile. It makes you smile. It is entertaining to be funny. And so when I when I do this trip, I, I have in the same way, I don't know where this comes from, but I find when I'm doing these endeavors, I end up with sort of words forming in my mind, a phrase, a clause, and I end up laughing at it. My wife's noticed it. She says, if I am thinking about something that I'm going to write, she actually sees me smiling or laughing to myself. Mm-hmm. It's because these word pictures come in. So when... When I am on the road and when I'm doing these things, I I make these notes, I put them together. So absurd is the total collage from start to finish, from the moment I saw that glossy picture in the glossy magazine to the moment it was ended as we left Gibraltar. And it was ended with me having one abiding thought, and that was of Winifred Wells, the next grand plan perhaps. And so Absurd is, is the story of the journey, a journey of people, a journey of change, a journey of exploration, and a journey of recollection. And most of the time, it's all about laughter. I mean, when I look back on my life and the things that I've done. I just find it enormously funny. When I tell these stories to people over dinner, we all fall about laughing because it is a hoot. What happened to us on this journey was enormously funny. Uh, it was enormously pleasurable. And I suspect that most of the adventurers you interview will tell you that it's enormously pleasurable. And there were, everything about them has left them happier people. So absurd is all of that. Uh, it was a joy for me to do it. It was a joy for me to write it. Uh, it makes me laugh. And I think it makes other people laugh. So I, I did it as a worthy cause to. to Recall all that was in this two part journey changing old men into motorbikers. What a ridiculous notion. How absurd is that? Hmm. However, at the end of it, they were all of those things and proud of it. And then at the same time, ending up traveling with a special forces guy and a combat journalist, combat zone journalist, in the most awful weather as we hacked our way across North or Africa on this strange, pointless odyssey of seeing a sunrise over the Sahara at 70 years old. That's the book. Um, And uh, I'm looking forward to doing the second journey. I'm looking forward to writing the next book because it will only be a book about another absurd notion that came to something sublime. Did you find yourself planning the second journey on your way
0: back from the first?
1: Yes, I did. From the moment of sitting by the fire, that log fire with Mick, I did. And it, it's taken shape in so many ideas, so many ways, and for so many reasons, I did. And and that's the problem. You know, my wife senses it in me. There are silences. She can talk to me. She doesn't hear me. And she'll say, where the hell are you? You're in a desert somewhere, are <laughs> And the truth is, yeah. And I, I have the root I know where the staging posts are. I know what the machine is. I know what equipment I want. I know who I need to assist me getting prepped. I know I need training because I have to become as wise and as knowledgeable in folklore, Australian folklore, as Winifred Wells. I need to know what's going to kill me and what is not because she did it on her own, right? I Mm. did it in a team of people. She did the ultimate challenge. She took on the world on her own. And she did it with aplomb. And that is magnificent. And so she is, I think she should be remembered for that. What advice,
0: well, I I hate to say advice. Actually, what thought would you leave someone with if if they came to you and they're saying, they're considering doing something absurd, something similar to what you've done? What thought would you leave them with?
1: I would say, do it. Just just make, decide on your first step. Just decide on the first, easier step. The step on the, the foothills of the mountain. And make that step. And then just don't stop. Start and don't stop. That's all they have to do. Irrespective of what happens, you don't stop.
0: Keith Future from his home in Penang. His book is called Absurd. Now, if you'd like to get the book, the website of the publisher is gbpublishing.co.uk. Of course, as always, that link is in our show notes that will take you directly to the book. We also have some great photos from uh, Keith's adventures in the the show notes as well. All at adventureriderradio.com. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this hey um don't forget i was mentioning if you drop by our website adventureriderradio.com click on the show notes for this episode we have that link in there to keith's book we also have the photos in there from his adventure and um so anyway if you're interested in looking at the book follow that link Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. And and before I let you go here, I just want to ask um, your support. The show is built on a model of listener support and advertising to make the whole thing work. So we need your support. Don't sit back and 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 think that everybody else is going to do it because it's only a small percentage of listeners that actually support the show. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Click on support. Anyway, thank you very much. Get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. I'll talk to you next week.
1: This is Elspeth Beard and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs)